attitude of intention and then also bringing the light yeah but not the light the energy behind the light yeah. not just the physical light yeah. the physical warmth or yeah. it's the yeah. whole energetic process mm. that's exuded yeah. um you know hugh's always on people's cases about and he'll say all compost has to have clay and you know and i finally say hugh do you mean clay or do you mean soil because in his mind all soil has clay in it Yes, yeah, yes. And, and in truth, maybe not. But where we come from, all soil has clay in it. And it's those colloidal factors, I think, that, mm. that drive the breaking down of the compost. And it's amazing, and people will come, and I finally said, Hugh, in your lectures, it's very confusing to people. Mm. You have to put clay, and people literally come, oh, should we buy bentonite? Should we buy potter's clay, blah, blah, blah. I finally said, why don't you just say put soil? Mm into the yeah. compost because that's really what you mean yeah and, yeah. and um, I think the clay like I would um, every year if I had a dam in each paddock when I build the the compost heaps I would yeah dig out dig out the clay right around the edges of the dam and cover the compost heaps with it Brilliant. but just no uh, no loss of nitrogen like never any smell yeah. at all and uh, I think it is, you know, it is very, very important that, that we retain everything we possibly can. Yeah. If we're doing something, why not do it to the you know, maximum um, potential that it's got? <laughs> it really you know, doesn't take that much extra to do it. But I think here again, if, um, or it seems to me anyway, if, uh, you know, if your last sort of night is, you know, um, about a problem or improving something or whatever, that next morning in a lot of cases you're going to have an idea of something to try. And I think it's this you know, sort of intuition when we're relaxed and we've got no preconceived idea is when they're worse, where they're, they're the most valuable sorts that you get. Yeah. Because you're not being, you know, by a vested interest or what you think might work. But you've think? also filled your computer bank with observations. Yeah. You know, a new farmer won't have the benefit of those, you know, generations of observation. I mean, just observing the phytolaca, well, you know, these plants don't get that nitrogen flush, that nitrate flush. Why is that? You know, well, that was an observation that actually you put into action. Yeah, yeah. So, but maybe. I mean, Dad, like, when we were growing up here, the Mount Johnson back here, um, he had a square mile of 640 acres there, was virgin. And uh, I remember one day we were looking around some of the plants and uh, I think it, it must have, it was possibly aphid or something like that. And um, I asked him a question about it and he said, look, you got that young horse there and you're working jump on and go up and have a ride around the mountain and come back and tell me what you're seeing. And it was, I, it, well, it possibly was, it could have been aphid, I'm not really sure. But I think, yeah, thinking now, I think it probably was aphid. You know, why does it stay on some plants and why not on others? When I got up there on the horse, like every time I'd get to a patch of undergrowth or new undergrowth, I'd get off and we'd just meander through it. And the only place that I've seen uh, aphid 
was where a limb had fallen down and broken a plant or, you know, where something had happened and the plant was physically injured. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's where the aphid were. It was the only place they were. And when I came back down, I, I said, well, look, the only thing I could find was that every plant that I'd seen that had aphid on it was physically injured, you know, that had been yeah. smashed or broken down. Mm. And uh, he said, well, now you've got it. And he, but he said, you know, you tell me now why you reckon the, the aphid were there. And um, I said, well, probably to get rid of the plant. He said, absolutely. Beautiful. What a good teacher your father was. And, uh, yeah, but I mean, that was the way he, he did it, you know, like I can, yeah, I can remember playing competitions with the horses. I'd say to him, you know, you reckon I'd be better with Borley on the, on the um, draft or on the inside? Go down and try him down there on the river bank. Not like he obviously knew, yeah, because he used to compete as well. But yeah, I would go and I'd find out for myself. And he was so much more valuable right. to learn that way than for him simply to mouth an answer. And um, I think now the Rose Society, um, quite a few of them, have um, recognised that the uh, aphid are the biggest problem. If the transfer of carbon from the photosynthesis during the day isn't transferred to the roots at night, that that's what is bringing the aphid in, this ready supply of sugar there for them. Mm. So you've got to re-establish that site. And how do you do that? And I learned after a lot of experimentation that oxygen and energy were the answer. That, uh, I would just mix my um, molasses and, and um, hydrogen peroxide late in the afternoon and spray it on and the aphid were gone next morning and didn't come back. That's a cheap Sim enough pesticide. Uh, yes, yeah. Well, it wasn't a pesticide, it was just making the plant transfer, oh. you know, sort of re-establishing that cycle yep. from the, the leaves back into the root. And um, they just don't go up the plant because they know there's no sugar there. So it, it is, you know, the things like that, that that really, to me, you know, making the whole adventure of agriculture um, exciting. And a lot of people, including Dorothy, um, can't understand why I get emotional when I'm talking about the soil. <laughs> or you know, anything in the soil or about the plants. But to me, you know, it used to be I grew up with the word agriculture. Exactly. Uh, That's today, our job is to put culture back into yeah, the agri. That's what we're doing. Yeah, it, it really and truly is. And I, I couldn't imagine why people wouldn't get enthusiastic you know, to the point of being that disappointed, it brings tears to your eyes when you see the way some things are treated and, you know, the fact that that um, diversity is no longer considered an important part of ecology. Now, I, I just can't understand those sort of things, you know, to the point where it really upsets me that we have the right to kill anything 
that we don't believe should be there without even researching whether it ought to be there or not. I can remember speaking to a really yeah, fantastic, fascinating vet. Came tearing up one afternoon and said, John, I've got a problem. He said, I, I said, what's the problem? And uh, he said, oh, I think this was Friday afternoon. He said, on Wednesday afternoon, I castrated 14 colts on the showground. And he said, I've never had it before, but he said the swelling and he said they're almost immobile. And um, I said, well, what did you do? He said, well, I castrated them on Wednesday. I didn't have a problem. But I said, it was full moon Wednesday. <laughs> oh, was it? He said, I can remember Dad saying, never castrate an animal on a full moon. I said, well, what else have you done? I said the manufacturers of some fantastic fly repellent, spray on fly repellent, had given him some of this and he just sprayed it and he said, not the fly been near him. I said, wait a minute, you tell me what a horse does if a fly comes near a wound. Oh, he said, they vibrate their, their skin. And I said, what does that does? Promote circulation. What does that does? Overcomes infection. What a bloody fool. He said, what, what am I going to do about it? I said, will it wash off? He said, I'll do my best to try it. And uh, he said, well, you know, what do you think I should do then? And I said, if I were you, and I knew the showman he was talking about, I said, I will take them all out after you wash them, let them go one at a time in the round yard. Oh, but they'll chase each other. Ian, can you suggest anything that is going to be better to recreate circulation and exercise. No, I can't. He went and did it. He rang the next, not that same day, he rang the next night and said, John, he said, I've got to bring you something. He said, it was just absolutely what you said. He said, when they started tormenting each other in the yard, he said, they were all that sore and sort of immobile that it wasn't anything that was dangerous. But he said, by four o'clock, he said, the bloody bush flies, the black flies were flying about in hundreds, he said, and they were just continually. And next morning, that was the, and it was the afternoon, late in the afternoon, when he rang me, he said, next morning the swelling was gone, none of them were dripping. And uh, he said, they're back in their own stables, and he said, look, he said, it's just remarkable. He said, now, what was my mistake? I said that you did not value what our bush flies do. Mm -hmm. And he said, that's true. Mm -hmm. Anyway, about a fortnight later, he seen, I seen him and he said, John, I will never bandage an open wound on a horse again. So, I mean, it just, you know, things like that. Yeah, there was a lack of observation until you brought it forward. What do they do when the fly hits? They yeah. vibrate their skin yeah. to get yeah. rid of it, yeah. you know? Yeah. One of my dear old mentors, he, uh, he always told me, he said, John, when a mare is, is falling, if they've got a problem, they've, you know, he said, they've got a few hours they will fight back, but he said, they're not like a cow that will, you know, sort of continue to try for a, a day and a half or two days. But he said, a mare, if she cannot fall, will just turn off like that oh, yeah. and 
and die. And I said, well, how do I know when they turn off? He said, when they stop quivering their skin when a fly comes to land on them, doesn't know whether it's on their eyes or their ears or on their body or anything else. He said, if they don't quiver and let a fly land on them, he said, they've chucked it in and they're gone. And you know, probably it was part of that relationship from that dear old man's observation that yep. you know, if they got to that stage where they didn't react to a fly that they handed their ticket in. So I think it, it is, um, there's just so many, so many things that we don't attempt to find out why they are here and it's a murky. I believe in the perfection of creation, and when I, you know, when I, I think of a rock over millions of years becoming the fertility that it is up until human intervention, that um, you know, I, my belief is that there is no plant that the usable type of part takes away more fertility than it leaves behind. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other thing that I believe is that there is no plant that grows better in isolation than it does than it will do in company with other plants. I don't care what they are. And I think that diversity from our grain growing is just such an expensive luxury that human beings seem to think we have a right to, to have. That uh, you know, if we had multiple species, particularly you know, some of the countries that we've got going now with, with the you know, lower ground cover legumes underneath their cereal crop, and also the opening up of the crops to let the sunlight you know get all the way into the plants, the lower leaves included, that they're reducing their planting density remarkably. You know, probably by. 40-50% in some cases and doubling the year simply by letting what comes in from the outside get to where it needs to be. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, there's things like that that every time I was looking last night and I think that's what that's what the Chinese chapel we wanted to talk about tonight, the densities. The, uh, yeah, in, in sugarcane and in quite a few of our cereals, you know, the, the increased production was sort of um, looked at, well, if we grow more plants per acre, we'll get more production, has been totally and absolutely wrong to the point where it denied production uh, capacity and capability. And actually in about 1970, the very first, first, uh, uh, I suppose, uh, attempt at a uh, comparison of genetically bastardised corn, hybrid corn and open pollinated corn was conducted and wherever it was in the United States, the Indians there used to grow their, their corn and they, they're the, the uh, tribe that actually came across the open pollinated species, Golden Superb. Mm-hmm. And, um, brilliant corn, very, very almost black with just a little white top on it. Mm-hmm. And um, the chap, or the people next door, they owned the property next door, they had the Cobb & Co coaches that ran the mail from Maitland to Patterson, from Patterson to Dungog, and mm-hmm. Patterson to Dungog is 20 miles, but includes uh, Walla Robble Mountain. 
And when they could get the golden superb, either that they grew themselves or bought from Dad or from anyone else about who grew a bit of corn for sale, while they were using golden superb, the trip was 20 minutes quicker each way than with yellow corn or any of the other corn, simply from the energy that was in it. So anyway, when this invitation for you know, plant breeders or anyone who was interested to have a, you know, in the same area, it was an organised area, in this test plot, to uh, grow corn. And these Indians, uh, they said, yes, they'd have a go. And they didn't work their soil. They just used a dibble stick, you know, the pointed stick, mm -hmm. make a little hole in the ground. Mm -hmm. And they either put, um, there was salmon and trout were the two fish that they were using at that particular time. So the gut, you know, part of the gut mm -hmm. would go in each hole, a little bit of dirt in on top of it, then the corn seed and then a the bit of dirt on the top, yep. and then flip the, the dibble stick over to the round end and just firm the ground up a bit on top of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, they topped all of the varieties, including the, the hybrids, but also the um, genetically modified version as well. And I think they were by about three bushels per acre, the heaviest, and on their test, the protein and all of the other things, they were you know, on top there as well, simply with a bloody dibble stick and the gut of these fish, as compared with you know, all of the... Fancy equipment. So. Fancy fertilisers and you know, hybrids and everything else. And to me, you know, there's a real lesson to learn and you know, to my disgust and something that will upset me since last October, that um, science now says that uh, the only way forward as far as our, our uh, skills base and our education is concerned is to drop tradition completely. That tradition is what holds up our progress to, to improve things and get better. So history and tradition now are not looked at. And like, I mean, to me, that tradition and history goes back to creation all the way through it's been successful until we've buggered it up. You know that the Hopi Indians who yeah. live in the high plateau mm -hmm. desert, I've spent time in ceremony with them and they actually, and I don't know if it's a thousand or two thousand years, but they traveled from North America all the way down to the tip of South America, planting this corn, and planting that corn, and carrying it on, you know, maybe a hundred years here, two hundred years there, and taking that corn seed and going to the next. So from what I understand, that that blue corn seed will grow anywhere yeah. in North or South America. Yeah. Yeah. That they have impregnated that genetic, energetic, from all that land that's there. So they created a breed, in a way, yeah, but yeah. that was, was available. Yeah, an open pollinated. Totally, yeah. and, and had the energy of all those areas, yeah. so. But the other thing, the lady professor who spoke at the, um, the conference in Turin that I did, um, she spoke about their, their um, you know, summer camp or summer home and winter home. And uh, that inclusive of the hives that they make their tents out of, if they were becoming dilapidated or at the end of their life, all of their residue was put in one spot 
then the buffalo cow cows would start calving and the colostrum you know, that they didn't use and the calf didn't use, all of the colostrum went onto the top of the heap as well. Yeah. And they knew that the next time that they came to that area that they would have the perfect compost. The first thing they did when they arrived was put their compost on where they were going to do their gardening and plant their seed. And that was from the de deteriorating the, hides and the, and the colostrum? Everything, like, yeah, but... The, you know, everything that they had that they didn't use, it all, you know, it was an accumulation point. Mm. You know, I said, it sounds like a central bank to me. And she said, you're <laughs> spot on. And uh, A bank but, with big returns. Yeah, but I mean, that, that was the way they did it. And the other thing that really, really amazed me was the fact that each year the tribes that went into areas where they would hunt buffalo would count the buffalo that were there, male, female, you know, the whole spectrum of their buffalo, and work out how many they could take in that time that they were there without upsetting the numbers seven generations forward. Yeah. Now, that's, that's looking 14 years forward. And... Seven years generation is more than 14 years forward. Seven generations, well, the, Seven the, generations the way she put it is, yeah. was that they carved between 18 months and 20 months of age. Oh, I mean, oh, of the buffalo, not of yeah. human beings. Yeah, no, the buffalo. Okay. Yeah, with the buffalo, so there's yeah. seven generations forward, yeah. not not the people. Yeah. It was the, yeah, with the buffalo count. But, you know, you imagine anyone in this day and age, if there was more than anyone wanted, They'd probably try preserving them or doing something with them or drying them or, you know, like there, yeah. there would be something other than looking seven generations forward to see what the, yeah. what the numbers were going to be. And when you look, you know, like uh, European settlers turned it into a dust bowl in, what, about 40 years? 36 years, 40 years? Yeah. And it... It's just remarkable, you know, the arrogance. Of you know, in, in, in Native American, because I'm very steeped in that spiritual philosophy, um, the main prayer is until the seven generations ahead. All right. That we consider everything, all of creation, yeah. seven generations. So my class and I sat down and I said, well, let's figure out what does this mean, seven generations? 264 people. Yeah. And they do, they've actually shown now they can blood type in all of us mm. out seven generations. Right. So they yeah. can literally see 264 different, well, I don't want to express it scientifically, but we literally walk around with 264 people inside of us. Yeah, yeah. Given the, to the seven generations yeah. behind. Yeah. You see, and, and it's like, wow, this, this shows a great deal of, who we are, we might have forgotten in our great-grandfather's name, or never known it for that matter, and to know that that person is still living inside of me yeah. as part of my genetic encoding, as part of my bloodstream, as mm. part of my organs, mm. oh, you know, and what worries me now is the generations ahead in the seven will have absolutely no relationship to the past, and that it becomes so technological, so unnatural, that what kind of genetics is that going to be? But I mean, it's the same, you look at those birds. Yep. I mean, the, their 
interbreeding with other breeds just has never occurred. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? The inbreeding has never occurred. Yeah. So, I mean, when people say, you know, make comments like bird brain, they're so much more intelligent than we are in their own way yeah. that you know, they, they just don't have the problems that we create for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it's just remarkable when I, uh, you know, when I hear, you know, that comment, thankfully, it's just about disappeared now, but um, if something wasn't very expensive, it was referred to as being as cheap as dirt. And I honestly feel that that's what our scientists and our educators, agricultural educators, today think that, you know, the, it's cheap as dirt, you know, it's, it's only there to hold plants up. I remember when when Hugh met, through me, Peter Escher, right. and we were walking down to his farm, and Hugh referred to it as his dirt. And Peter just said, no, we don't work with dirt, we work with soil. Mm. This is soil, this is, mm. you know, and it looked like dirt then. It mm. was pretty deadpan. Yeah. It sure isn't anymore. But I mean, it, uh, when... Uh, now, I'm often amazed that I just ask the question, depending on the company I'm on and if that's, you know, the, the conversation, the way it's gone, I'll ask people, you know, what did they think was the most essential thing um, for humans into the future? And it is always economics. You know, almost always economics. That if you've got enough money, science can overcome everything. Science has created all our problems. Yes. Why in the bloody hell would anyone with any brains employ the same people who create your problems to overcome them? <laughs> no, honestly. Honestly, that's one of the best statements I've heard you say. That's but perfect. It, <laughs> yeah, so I, yeah, I really, uh, I really wonder. Why would we hire? Why would we employ the people that created the problems to solve the problems they created? Yes. And probably it's because that's what economists have always done. Yeah. They create problems and then expect to get paid to overcome them. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. If, uh, <laughs> I've been lucky to live in the time that I've lived in where, you know, we yeah. had an opportunity to... We're going to 